Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Across the Isle. I'm Philip Teal. 12th episode, yes, it's our first birthday. We're generously funded for a second season. We'll be joined by a very special guest for intermission. We're feeling kind of on top of the world, aren't we, Carla? (laughs) Top of the morning. (laughs) It's good to see you. I'm so excited to be celebrating the end of our first season and our first year. And we're going to do it by discussing two very different productions. Both hosted at the Malthouse Theatre. First, Belvoir's touring production of Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie. And then an artist-curated event at the Malthouse in the bleak midwinter, curated by The Rabble. But first, allow us some love. The response of all of you to our first birthday crowdfunding campaign was heartening, kind of literally. It's an honour to know that our show is valued by so many discerning and generous people. Thank you so much to everyone who shared, pledged and helped with the campaign. We're now set to deliver another 12 monthly episodes of discussion about theatre and the arts in Melbourne. And that makes us feel wonderful. It sure does. I just want to thank everyone as well. Philip? Um, particularly, uh, we, you know, obviously we do this show for ourselves first and foremost. It's, you know, we created what we didn't see in the world, what we wanted, but also it was just, uh, really beautiful to see so many people from the theatre scene and the art scene supporting us. It's, you know, we really do this show for you and, uh, theatre nuts like us. So that's why our listenership is so small, (laughs) but thank you so much for your support. It's been really beautiful. Special shout-outs to Katrina French New Wave Benson. And Zoe Louise Calamity Chain Moonbeam Dawson. Declan, no, you are a miracle green. (laughs) (laughs) Rosanna downloading us in Berlin, Lovell. Dr. Ros McFarlane. Ben Prison Break McKenzie. Siobhan Ms. Museum Motherway. Reese Tinkle My Ivories Ting. And Paul Trench Nelson. <laughs> More to come. And to our beloved new group of subscribers who will receive special spoiler alert updates before we record each month, thank you to you as well. But now let's talk about theatre. Let's do our job. Tennessee Williams, Carla, what drew you to The Glass Menagerie? Mm, I'm regretting it now, as we'll find out. Primarily, Pamela Ray, as I've spoken about her before on the show many times, she is just the twinkle in my eye, the puddle in my seat. And I go and see her whenever I can. So we, of course, went along to see The Glass Menagerie. Before I do a little bit you know, of an introduction of the show, I don't really know much about Tennessee Williams. I've only seen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and several different versions of Streetcar. So this is my third one of his plays. And The Glass Menagerie is described as one of Tennessee Williams' most legendary characters, the formidable Amanda Wingfield, a faded Southern belle with delusions of grandeur. The year is 1937 and she's stuck in a tiny, rundown apartment with her two adult children, the frustrated Tom and the cripplingly shy Laura. All three of them need to break free of the past. Could Laura's gentleman caller be their answer? So, I don't really want to see plays like this anymore. I don't really feel like they have any kind of relevance to contemporary world. The only kind of relevance I feel is 
I really bristled against this content. Like, it's almost like gore porn to me, like patriarchal gore porn. Like, we're just going to go and sit there and have this kind of really sad circle jerk about how the patriarchy, you know, destroys everyone. But I just kind of found this really sort of so uninspiring and flaccid, at least like in Streetcar, you know, she, you know, the patriarchy literally drives her insane and they put her in an asylum. Like, you get this. You get like some kind of substantial ending that really kind of makes you go, oh, that's not right. But this was just kind of really long drawn and flaccid and I don't really understand what this play would have for a contemporary audience anywhere, but particularly for a contemporary audience audience in Australia. It kind of seems like this sort of southern 50s fetishism, but what for? And... I didn't, I didn't really, you know, I can't say this from a place of total authority, but I have been going and seeing Palmer Ray, Ray plays for a long time and, you know, you think of people like Alison White and Robin Niven and is there honestly no roles in Melbourne for women over the age of 50 that aren't completely deranged or insane mothers? And deranged, insane, violent, frustrated, it really is a depiction of somebody at her wit's end until at least she puts on that... Southern Belle nostalgia dress and goes for a bit of a literal spin around the room. Which is almost like a meta moment in the, like a play within the play. It's like that play to me in the play, like she, (laughs) she's doing her, anyway, sorry, you go, Philip. Oh, I was, (laughs) I was very interested in your take on it as a kind of representation of something that is familiar and that we already know and that we almost sort of have this double relationship to the nostalgia portrayed in the play by going back into the theatre that we know from the United States in a relaxing sort of way. And it was gorgeous. There were moments in this production of real self-congratulatory visual aesthetics that were just so on point. Uh, The disco ball shedding its gorgeous dots around the room the use of uh, film-style techniques to represent a slightly delayed version, a misty-eyed, rose-coloured, black-and-white film version of what was going on on the stage, I thought was really effective. It reminded me of what North by Northwest at the Arts Centre didn't achieve, right? Yes, that's a very, very good point. it It was using film as a medium for a reason, and it created that self-commentary. Fine, if we're going to be doing a play that is well-known in a nostalgic style, let's really go full nostalgia, almost camp level of nostalgia. It was really beautiful. I'm, I have no issue with the production. The mm. production was stunning. Um, but I did. I hated that delay with the video screens. There, it was frustrating in a way, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the relevance and your questions about whether there is anything in it for contemporary audiences, I did think that it felt historical, but in an interesting way. Specifically, the narrator character, this person who sort of tells the story of his family and his departure from his family, the kind of obvious stand-in for Tennessee Williams himself. Mm. So that must be Tom Wingfield, right? The character played by Luke Mullins. Just beautifully portrayed. And just pushing nicely in a kind of contemporary queer way against the closeted 
hint dropping of that character who keeps going out mysteriously to have adventures and to see movies and who just can't quite fit in this heteronormative reproductive family unit, is tired of it, is never going to uh, succeed in it and so needs to actually literally turn his back on his family in order to get out of there and find an alternative I found that something that I could connect to, not in terms of my own contemporary experience, but I thought it nicely honoured a 20th century gay male experience that has been had by people who are still living and that I have some connection to myself. Look, it was definitely even across the board in terms of, you know, three social pariahs for whatever reason or, you know, contextually social pariahs. So you've got the abandoned woman, you've got the crippled daughter, you've got the queer son. All of their stories were, I think, given equal weight and, you know, they were all kind of abound in each other's misery. But there was just no hope in this play. Well, there's Jim. Jim rocks up. (laughs) The gentleman caller, is he the answer with his sort of self-help rhetoric about, you know, people needing to get over their inferiority complex? Laura, you're not crippled. You've just got an inferiority complex and I'll teach you how to kind of work your way out of this funk that you're in. I mean, there was something almost Trump-like about this character, I felt, (laughs) in his sort of, I've got the way of talking that will make everything okay, right? Mm. Just keep listening to my voice and that's going to make your demoralised world magically better. But I can't actually help you and now I've got to go. Yes, that's right. It's too much for me. Out of here. And also this, like, you know, the the metaphor of the, the literal glass menagerie in the house and how, you know, as, you know, the animal kingdom is so fragile and aren't we all just little blown glass animals, <laughs> you know? Um, it's just, it just didn't have enough in it for me to sort of walk down this fake memory lane because it's not a memory lane for us. I do like the aesthetic object of the play, right? I think that there is a place for theatre that is well-written somehow as an end in itself. I've always been a bit kind of style over substance in that regard. And there is something entertaining about a great theatre company like Belvoir putting on a great piece of 20th century work well, right? Like I felt myself really uh, respecting that as an end in itself. And I don't know that this was necessarily trying to push any other contemporary political buttons. And I would probably, if pushed, uh, say that there is room for productions like this in the work of a company like Belvoir or the Malthouse. I think it's definitely, like, I'm not a snob and I'm not, you know, demanding that everything be contemporarily relevant. But I'm just so angry about Pamela Rames portrayal and character and it's like she was just so grotesque and to be such a clown and a character and it just really rattled me and I believe that there is a place for popcorn theatre of course you know but this was not it so what was it? Mm. And I think she was directed to be a little bit over the top in a way that wasn't necessary. I agree with you about that character. I don't know that that's Tennessee Williams version of Um, Amanda Wingfield necessarily. I don't think she needs to actually waft little amounts of air out of her dress at the gentleman caller. I mean, it became became a kind of vaudevillian sort of circus act. I mean, the the thing that I can't get out of my mind is the fact that her dress literally didn't fit. So it was, a, it was a fat joke, yes. essentially. It was, and it was at that yeah. level. There was actually a couple of, of fat vaudeville. jokes in there. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that the script allows for something more nuanced in that character. I mean, yes, she's I she she's like a mother guarding her nest. Like she really does want Laura to be happy, and the only way she knows for that happiness to be achieved is how it sort of was maybe half achieved for her for a while, which was through men. So maybe that's my anger because I really feel that the son, the uh, Tom Wingfield character, there was that subtlety there. I you know, agree. there was a reading there and it was very subtly produced, whereas the mother, the Amanda Wingfield character, it was, cl- it was grotesque and clowning. Mm. And I think if that level of subtlety would have been there, it would have been much more finely tuned and balanced and I wouldn't have read it as sexist. I read this play and this production as sexist with how its female actors are portrayed and the characters, and it just made me incredibly angry. Well, it's made by Eamon, Michael, Damien and Stefan (laughs) 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 with costumes by Mel. It was, look, it was a beautiful production, no doubt, but I didn't enjoy it. I did. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) I told Dion that you would enjoy it. Oh, look, it's my scene. I can live with myself. What did you enjoy about it? Probably mostly the disco ball. It was very underwater, crabby dreamlike, <laughs> wasn't it? It was. It's like, it was actually yeah. like the Little Mermaid should have been. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Well, it's intermission. And today we are joined by one of our very generous and very lovely possible supporters, Jasmine Mosley. Jasmine, Jasmine. welcome. (laughs) Hello. Welcome to our little studio. Can we get you a drink? Oh, yes, please. I'll have some bubbles. Oh, always. Yes. Pop a cork. (laughs) (laughs) So it's delightful to have you as our special guest and we are gagging to know what you have been up to this month. Well, what haven't I been up to? That's the question. Oh. Mm. (laughs) Lots of things. All right. Top three. Top three. Well, at the beginning of the month, I participated in the live experience of Max Richter's sleep. Oh, what is that? Well, it was um, part of the Vivid Live program at the Sydney Opera House. And they did this live um, stream of the eight-hour performance um, from the Sydney Opera House foyers. And so I got my sleeping bag out and I (laughs) decided to fully participate and immerse myself. And um, it's meant to lull you into this sleep. So I sort of slept to this eight-hour lullaby and I woke up every now and then and then it was beautiful in the morning. I magically somehow was roused from my sleep by this amazing music and watched the ferries go past. So it was all live on my television. This is ultimate Sydney. How perfect. And it was great because I spend a lot of time in the Opera House with my work. So it felt like I was sort of in my house, just in another room. Ah, but it's like that amazing dream that you sometimes have when you're in your house and then you open a door to an entirely new room. Yeah. (laughs) Has anyone had that dream before? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I never knew this was here. I did find a cupboard in my apartment not long ago. (laughs) Mm. But were other people in their sleeping bags? Well, there were in the in the opera house. They had all these little beds set up in the foyer, so you could see. So the stream showed the performers, but also um, all these little beds around the place. So people were getting up. They were in their pajamas. They were sitting down because it was sort of on this um, lower part of of the foyer area. So you could sort of walk down the stairs and walk around them. And cool. Yeah, there were, so there were people yawning. There were people sleeping. Yes, love it. Anything else? 
Oh, lots of things. Give but, us more, more. Oh, more. Um, I saw a wonderful, um, I want to say dance performance, but it was more of an experience at um, Arts House called uh, Mira Fuchs. That's a European pronunciation. Oh. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> by this um, incredible performer, Melanie. I don't know whether it's Jamie or Jame. Okay. Melanie Jame. And her surname escapes me. Anyway, she's absolutely extraordinary. And it was this lap dance, uh, exploration of the lap dance. And we were seated in a circle around her. And it was absolutely intriguing. She sort of took us into the world of those underground clubs and then deconstructed it. Which she has worked in. Yeah. She was revisiting a kind of practice, wasn't she, that she's done professionally in the past. Yeah. Was she doing? Was she also doing like a, a, a spoken word event about this, or was it just? Um, I'm not sure. She's she's done this performance. She's staged it in quite a few different places. Okay. I think she lives in Europe, in maybe in Berlin. Okay. I'm not sure. Anyway, she's done it in lots of different cities, and with varying groups of people. And actually, she did a Q and A after it, and it was absolutely amazing. Oh yeah. my god! So Jasmine. did you get very confronting? Yes. Wow. Yes, but you know it was fascinating because I was seated in the circle and she started sort of a few people down from me and she sort of progressed around the circle. So by the time she got to me, it's sort of a bit of an emotional decision. You know, she's tired, we're tired. Oh. You want to be in on the experience. But it's sort of, so it makes you really think what does this actually mean and what's it going to feel like? Oh my God, that's intense. It was totally intense and I I didn't know what to do, but she sort of, she just really sat in front of me. She popped her legs up on either side of my chair and just stared at me really what? intensely. <laughs> Whoa! And it was incredible. And when we talked about it afterwards at the Q&A, she made this really interesting comment, which was, like you give, it's about an exchange of energy. So she responds to what you're giving out. So okay. Oh wow. So she's mirroring you almost. Almost. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it sounds like she caught your indecisive moment perfectly <laughs> in the in the first in the opening gesture, right? Well, she did because I was a bit nervous. So she she, she sort of said, "Would you like a dance?" I said, "Oh, uh, sure, of course." You know, and she said, "No, I have to be explicit. Is it yes? Yeah. Or no? Yeah. Okay. And so." In that confusion of, you know, that moment, yeah, she, she read me completely. Wow. Yeah. Love it. Full on. What have you been doing, Philip? <laughs> <laughs> I um, took myself off to the Princess Theatre for Matilda. Oh, yay, <laughs> yay. It was really loud. Oh, I heard that. Noisy. Yeah. What, musicals these days just need sort of confetti bombs and explosions and bright lights in the audience faces. I mean, I loved Matilda the book as a child but found it so cerebral and nerdy that I didn't quite buy the transition from that to full-blown spectacular, um, especially since Minchin, the creator, was trying successfully at most times to keep all of that nerdy cerebral stuff in it so it sort of was a production that went against the grain of itself on the one hand there's all of this fabulously thoughtful music making about the brain and learning so there's a song that conforms to all of the letters of the alphabet as they kind of appear within individual words in our language say right and really shows that nerdiness off and so that didn't need to also have jazz hands, but it did. But he's really like that, isn't he? He's like wordy. He's the wordy guy. Yeah, he's wordy, yeah. and I prefer him at the piano to a giant kind of stage with 
yeah, multiple screaming children. Yeah. I love jazz hands, though. Of course. <laughs> Don't we all? Of course. It was named after you, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, all that jazz. <laughs> and colour? Um, well, I was supposed to do many things this month, but I got the flu, like, mm. bad. So, in the end, I only did one thing, which was I went to Putt-Putt. I think New South Wales people Putt-Putt call it Putt-Putt. the Putt-Putt. golf. <laughs> But Victorians mini call golf? it mini golf. <laughs> Best fun. So I went to mini golf, and I'm a mini golf aficionado, and it's like the number one thing I do whenever I go somewhere new is like mini golf and op shops. And uh, so in Melbourne, sadly, there isn't very much mini golf. There's only one court in the city, or you know, course. It's crap. There's one out. Don't Marinda, go. Marinda Highway part of Melbourne on the way to the Yarrow Valley maybe they might have shut uh, it down maybe. I only seek them out in regional destinations mm. yeah mm. if you can't if you yeah you have to, if you can get it by you know mini golf <laughs> <laughs> well we went to uh, there's one out in Geelong and it was amazing it was a really 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 good course and we had a great day so cool that's all I did cool yeah. am I meant to ask what's your handicap no <laughs> I don't even know <laughs> I'm actually really bad at it I'm really good I'm really good at bowling but uh, but I'm bad at putt-putt. But, like, about three quarters of the way through the course, I'm bored and over it. Well, that's that's part of it, though. It's yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's about endurance, endurance as well. It's an endurance sport. Not many people would know that, though. <laughs> <laughs> Mentally. Mm, mm. It was also really cold to go and play putt-putt. But anyway, I've, I'm just about to go to the States. So um, I've mapped out some, like, epic putt-putt courses there so I'm going to have a lot of fun And are you pro-novelty or do you prefer austere? Well, the thing is is that it's so, you can't, I don't know I haven't played on any of those really super fancy American ones where it's like a ship, no actually I did go to King Tut's putt-putt in the Gold Coast <laughs> which is like Egyptian putt and that was sweet so Excellent. I would say either or, it doesn't really matter Yeah <laughs> I just have never experienced an austere mini golf course. <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't really there's, understand. There's what. a few very sad yeah. ones out there. <laughs> I think I stayed at some very cheap caravan parks as a child. <laughs> okay, back we go for something far higher brow. Our second show today is In the Bleak Midwinter. This is a show hosted at the Malt House by the Malt House, but curated by The Rabble. And they write, The Winter Solstice is ordinarily marked by rituals of rebirth and renewal, traditionally on the longest night of the year. Cattle are slaughtered, wine is fermented, and kings are sacrificed for the eternal feminine. The rabble uses this metaphor as a quiet political protest against their interpretation of the bleak midwinter that the arts and culture sector has recently experienced. Arts, services and people are ritually lost through the ages, but for what purpose? A needless slaughter. In this bleak midwinter, the rabble presents a series of absences. A performance in the dark, a scene with no actors, a voice you can't hear, their ritualistic sacrifice of the arts. And indeed, the show opens with nothing. <laughs> well, an invisible performer. Oh no, that, that comes a little bit later. Nothing? <laughs> Commentary from the audience about exactly when they're going to walk out and go home? <laughs> a little bit more nothing? An applause sign appearing above the stage, invitingly. <laughs> oh, no, there is a coffin on stage. Oh, a coffin. Yeah, there's a coffin. 
And then a voice, footsteps, an invisible witch presenting the presentation but not being there in the space with us. It reminded me a bit of extreme minimalism in the music scene, John Cage and Friends doing things like pieces of music that didn't have any music in them. (laughs) (laughs) And so the idea was that you would notice your other senses a bit more or listen closely to the breathing of the people around you, as I did, and the whispering and the kind of shuffling. Um, I, I noticed some nice perfume. So I had a sensory experience stimulated by that nothingness. But look, the show did move on, and it was a kind of dark take on the variety show. Mm. Different performers would come and go, and you were always resting in the assurance that if something was too much for you, too little for you, too slow for you, there would be something else coming soon. And I think they nicely alternated the mood of the performers so that it rolled along towards its balloon squeaking conclusion. (laughs) Um, I have to say that that thing that I read about the um, protest against arts cuts, I only read after the show, right? And it does provide a nice retrospective narrative. But I actually enjoyed myself immensely throughout the performance without knowing that there was a commentary about the state of the arts in Australia. I think it works both ways and I'm happy with the explanation and it does match my experience of the show. But long periods of speaking, um, like aesthetically curated speaking, were beautiful whether or not you twigged that this was something about the arts. Little lines like, we must speak of love in bitter times, work romantically as well as politically about the fact that indeed we do need to get a different type of energy now in the arts with the rug being pulled out from underneath the Mm. sector so forcefully and dramatically. Mm. I actually did get the metaphor without having read the production uh, notes before and it, it was immediate for me sitting down and the house well the lights it was just that blue kind of blue gels where it looks like it's sort of midnight on the dark stage with the coffin and we just sit there for five minutes looking at the coffin and I was like oh <laughs> this is what the world's going to be like without mm-hmm. artists mm. so you know and then maybe I was like oh is this a cheesy kind of like death of the arts metaphor with the coffin so but uh, it, it did it did get there for me and then you know you had the invisible witch and I'm trying to think of the other ones. Gorilla. I had this the gorilla, Daniel, Daniel Schlusser, Schlusser, uh, I can't ever say his name, sorry. And that his piece, which was, there were so many pieces which were just unbearable, mm. like unbearable, either by the length of time or the just no content to the performance. And I just found that incredible. Like I was cap- like absolutely captivated the whole time through this performance. And it was so atmospheric, everyone in black. I loved the piece with um, just the two women standing there and one threatening to smack her in the face with a mop. That was, <laughs> that was my There was a kind of Monty Python quality to it. And the cello piece by Jess Keefe and, you know, just basically the garage door, a little portion of the garage door just kind of rolls open. There's a cellist behind there and she, you know, plays a really long, mournful, amazing... Uh, cello piece but still like quite distant from the stage and the audience and not mic'd so it was very difficult to hear it I mean my senses did kind of adjust in and out it was sometimes overly 
excruciatingly loud and other times so quiet, you know, you had to really strain, but it really had that kind of like almost, you know, meditative kind of witchy feel where you just feel like, oh, fuck, are they actually going to come bring out a pig and slaughter it on stage? You know, Mm -hmm. like, is this going to be the conclusion of this performance? Mm. And I wouldn't put it above them either, you know. And that deliberate drawing attention to the slowness and the emptiness. So going back to the gorilla performance, which is essentially a fading light. Yes, 23%. Yeah. (laughs) 23% gel on a 10-minute fade. Uh, The fact that he actually said the number of minutes and really dared the audience to not be able to stand it. Yeah. Heightened the um, unbearability of it really effectively, I thought. Look, it's always a great compliment when people are leaving around you. Um, So I felt pretty (laughs) up myself by the time the show was over. (laughs) (laughs) I had some really entertaining boomer types around me who not only wanted to leave from the first few seconds, but wanted their leaving to mean something. Like they wanted it to register. That's it. Shuffle. (laughs) I can't bear much more of this. You know, somebody said, something must happen eventually. (laughs) I think they were secretly hoping it wouldn't so that they could leave as they eventually did. It was delightful. It was anarchy. And this, I guess, I haven't checked all of this out properly, but I'm guessing that this is the Malthouse's way of doing edgy contemporary new work now that they're not doing these new works festivals that they had been doing until about a couple of years back. Um, this set of performances at the Malt House, this being one of about three, is called an artist-curated event. So what I take that to mean is that the Malt House has said to the rabble, here's our space, here are our resources, we'll market your event and you know connect our networks to what you're doing here, but you have total freedom to do what you like with it. And it had that fringe quality, that sort of on-the-edge-of-the-edge note to it, which was quite liberating, I felt, in terms of how I viewed the performance. I wasn't asked to take it in the same way that I would take something in the larger theatres of the space uh, with the same types of announcements and lighting designs of those other productions. Yeah. We haven't talked about my favourite act, which was I don't know which performance she was. Oh, Annie Last. So we had the, the, the coffin on stage for a long time, maybe 15 minutes, and perform, the invisible performer would perform in front of it. We had an invisible choir we come did. out and sing a song <laughs> that we couldn't hear. And then after the invisible choir, this mop monster jumps out of the – oh, well, actually, no, a – I assume it was a heart, like an animal heart of some kind, blobs off from the roof onto mm. the splats onto the ground and up jumps this mop monster <laughs> from inside the coffin <laughs> and it's just Annie Last in an outfit made entirely of mop heads and she just rolls around on the floor <laughs> mopping up the blood from the animal heart. Yep. That was my favourite. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have to mention that the choir was not only invisible but inaudible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to sit there for five minutes yes. and not listen, listening. We knew it was over when the applause sign flashed. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a real gossip generator. I mean, it's a very successful provocation as a show because you do want to sort of narrate each of these elements and remember how unbearable they were to sit through, right? Yes. Um, and I take that to mean that it was absolutely successful. And it highlighted some things for me as a non-performer theatrically about what's needed to put on theatre. So 
I was actually technically interested in the fact that a spotlight can have percentage amounts that need to be tested and decided on. Yeah. I was interested in the fact that, well, okay, if you're going to have an effect like a heart hopping onto the stage, that's going to need to be mopped up by someone. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And the fact that they didn't let us have that nicely invisible, right? There was almost a class commentary there, the fact that we needed to watch the workers clean up after the performance. You know, we were going to get the spectacle, but we were also going to have to sit through the balaclava-hidden cleaner do her work. And I don't know whether it was ironic, but I am actually assuming that it was because they actually didn't have any money. But the, the, uh, you know, the costumes are very basic right at the end where they just finish the show with 10 people standing on stage in plastic Viking helmets and lace veils, slowly letting out the air from balloons for about five, ten minutes. Who knew or- by that stage? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I the kind of budget plastic helmet aspect of it didn't escape me either. So yeah. that finale was just fabulous. It was. It was. It took me back to the start. I mean, I mentioned um, that I was thinking of John Cage and his silent compositions at the start of the show, there was also something contemporary classical about the way that they made those balloons rhythmically squeak out something that actually became decodable as music. Yes. Um, And it was freaking hilarious. Yeah. I was absolutely captivated by this and enraged and bored and amazed and laughing hilariously at the things that Ron was saying next to me. <laughs> I'd neglected to mention to Ron that, you know, like the rabble is about as like esoteric and as artistic, quote unquote, as my mother would say in Melbourne. And Ron was just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> the whole time. It was amazing. And the walkouts definitely added to it. It makes me so happy that Melbourne is a city that can contain something like this yes, in its heart. Totally. In its beating, <laughs> splattered heart. Thanks, Philip. <laughs> Okay, it's time for coming soon. Let's bring Jasmine back. Oh, hey, you Jasmine. guys. Hey. Oh, hey. Get over here. <laughs> Thanks. What should we be doing in July? Well, I would say come to London with me. <gasps> oh. To the Australian Ballet's tour. Oh, how are they touring? Oh, we're touring Graham Murphy's Swan Lake. Oh, Jasmine works for Australian Ballet, by the way. (laughs) And Alexei Ratmansky's Cinderella. So two beautiful productions. But if you're here in Melbourne, I think if you're going to the Melbourne International Film Festival, you you should go see Ella which is a documentary about one of our dancers. Oh, yes. Ella Hovelka, who was uh, in 2013, she became the first Indigenous ballerina at the Australian Ballet. How exciting. Yeah. (laughs) And MIF is a July thing, like a late July thing Mm. this year. Okay. Um, And I do like a good careful read of the MIF guide and a circling and a second circling and a star asterisking. What is your method? What is your method, both of you? I'm a full reader of every word of copy in the entire magazine. I need a hard copy. I have to buy the age. It's my one age buying experience of the year. I forget where you buy the age, but I find that place and I buy it. So you read the program and do you read the reviews or do you simply choose on face value they're, they're not really reviews they're the a synops- sort of marketing synopsies. marketing language which i yeah. love as a genre like there's a lot of adverbs in it yeah, mm. yeah. i like that too mm. and i mm. i don't mind a doco i don't mind um a very long film 
Yeah. You know, like if, if something goes for what more than four hours, I take that as a personal challenge. <laughs> yeah, I do too, actually. <laughs> Carla, what's your approach? Uh, okay, well, myth program. So I like you read the whole thing cover to cover. Then usually by the time I finish, I've got things circled, which is definite. So it's either by director mostly or actor. And then I'll have things asterisks where I'm like, that looks interesting. And so by the time I've gotten through, I usually used to do 26 films. You know, I've probably got like maybe seven left or eight left. And then it's like going through all the asterisks and Mm -hmm. ranking them from there. Mm -hmm. But now, like, I usually try to keep a few up my sleeve just to kind of like get it in there once there's sort of buzz happening Mm -hmm. or so Mm -hmm. I can kind of move things around because I've... I've in the past I've been like way too military about it and mm-hmm. kind of regretted some decisions. So. I'm a mini pass holder. Yeah. Um, and there's the conundrum of the three free daytime sessions, which you ca- literally can't go to. That's such a lie. <laughs> so first of all, they finish at four. True. Right. So you can get there at four, but then I also take time off work. So mm-hmm. yeah. What about you, Justin? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I'm never usually in town, but I'll be here for the end of the festival, um, and I'm very impulsive by nature so I love to just turn up and see what's on let me spruik waiting lists as well if things are sold out don't think that you can't get in turn up Hmm. get on a waiting list Hmm. because they'll shuffle you in because people just don't come Hmm. so don't think it's unavailable to you okay how exciting yeah and other ballet stuff later this year I mean what's Australian ballet in Melbourne going to look like Ah, well, we'll be doing um, two seasons in September. We're doing a season of Capalia at the Palais Theatre. Very yeah. exciting. Something a little bit different. That floor mm. is really wonky. I hope they level it <laughs> before they get the ballerinas on there. Oh, you know, backstage <laughs> secrets. <Yeah. laughs> and we're doing Nijinsky, John Neumeyer's Nijinsky at the art centre, so that'll be very exciting. I haven't heard of that. Yes, well, I'm I'm really only seen little bits and pieces in rehearsal and... Um, About the ballerina, like telling the story of the ballerina by a ballerina? Well, Nijinsky, it's telling the story of his life. Mm. Yeah, so it's sort of... Yeah, I'm I'm sort of intrigued about it. I've only seen a little documentary. I feel like I need to learn a little bit more about um, Nijinsky himself, but it should be really fascinating. And drumroll, Carla, where will you be going Well, next? I was just about to say to Jasmine, uh, is it on at the end of September, any of them? Yes. Oh, great. So when I'm back. So uh, I'm just about to go to the US for my job for three months, <laughs> which is very exciting. I'm going to miss you. I know. I'm going to miss Melbourne, but I'm not going to miss winter. I'm actually really excited about having another summer. But that means that we actually have a special episode that we've recorded for you guys for, when is it, August? Well, that'll be the July episode. And then we're going to have a special guest Mm. for the August episode, which is released in early September. And then I'll be back late September and hopefully I can come and see those ballets, Jazzy. That would be amazing. Well, there's, you know, so many treats we can see. Yay. Melbourne's a wonderful city. Well, it's the perfect time of year for me to come back because it'd be like arts. Fringe, that's about it. Grouse. Really. Yeah. Um, final <laughs> little thing that I saw was that, of course, in July, it's school holiday season. And so lots of the companies put on something for younger people. And Melbourne Theatre Company has a hilarious sounding show called Egg. I specifically like the fact that it's called an eco-adventure <laughs> for ages eight to ancient. Oh. Um, so that might be worth checking out if you are the guardian of small people. What are you doing? What am I doing? Yeah. I'm going. I'm just going to. I'm just reading my myth guide. You're just going to do myth. 
That's it. You're I'm going on a high note. Guide, no, I'm actually. I'm Assume going, the position. Yes. I will be um, out of town a little bit in the school holidays doing a walk along the Heysen Trail in South Australia, Barossa. Barossa area. Long distance walking. How long? Like five days. Wow. Why don't mm. you just become like an endurance performance artist already? Mm. Like, I, I, that's what you need to do. Like memorizing sonnets was what I was doing on my last one. <laughs> so I need to sort of bring it more into the present. <laughs> oh my God, I love you. <laughs> and that is it for our birthday show. Happy birthday across the aisle. Yay, yay, yay. And thanks, everyone, for listening, especially all those who supported our crowdfunding campaign. We love you. We look forward to bestowing all of your chosen rewards. You can contact Carla and me at us at acrossisle.com. Our Facebook page is Across Isle and Twitter at Across Isle. Thank you, Jasmine, our guest. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honour. Ron of Shack West, our beloved producer, and Mark Barrage for our theme tune. There's more of Mark on SoundCloud. And Ron can be found all over iTunes. Finally and sincerely, thank you to the resilient, bold and generous artists who put on the shows we have seen this month. We value you very much. Partly because without you, we'd have nothing to talk about. <laughs> Thank you, Carla. Thank you, Philip. See you next month. Bye.